As I read Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Now, verses 3 through 5 are the sermon text, but uh, for the sake of continuity and making sense of this text, since it's really one statement, I'll read verses 1 through 5, but verses 3 through 5 is the focus of the sermon. And so this is what the Apostle says in those verses. And give your attention now to God's word. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we come to you together once more now and ask you that having read your word, you might bless uh, it to our hearts and commend this word, especially through the preaching. Give the people a ready heart and a ready ear to listen uh, to what you have to say now through um, the weakness of my own preaching. And I pray as well for my own sake that you might enable me uh, to to preach to them. And we ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I just said, as we look at these verses, verses 3 through 5 of Romans chapter 5, we have uh, the conclusion of what is really a single statement, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. There's just too much there to pack it into one sermon, and, and, and hardly uh, two for that matter. And so these three verses come as part of this larger statement, which I just read, verses 1 through 5. And what Paul is describing in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, are the benefits or the blessings that flow to the believer from his justification. And so we are not looking specifically at this point at justification. We were in chapters 1 through 4, and especially the second part of chapter 3 through chapter 4. But now we are looking at the consequences, which I'm calling the blessings, which flow to the believer as a result of having been justified. Therefore, having been justified, we, well, what is true of us now that we have been justified? Peace with God. Access into this grace in which we stand and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. Those were the contents of, of chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. That Those were uh, what I could call the stuff of salvation that we considered last time. And uh, this line of thought, which is expressed in these five verses, is, I think, wonderfully captured and expressed in Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 36. The question is this, what are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? You have been justified. What else is true of you? Here is the answer. The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are, and tell me if this sounds familiar, assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, Increase of grace and perseverance therein to the end. I don't have any doubt that in writing the answer to that, they had these very verses in mind. 
All five of those blessings can be found in these five verses. And this is the exact logic that can be found, uh, therefore, in Paul. Having explained these primary blessings, uh, Paul specifically justification, but the shorter catechism speaking more broadly of justification, adoption, and sanctification, we must realize how these things are worked out in the experience of the believer. The believer is enabled, as a result of these, to enjoy certain benefits which flow from these primary saving blessings. Justification chief among them. And that is what we are considering now, and that is what we find in Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 36. Well, look here, Paul says, going on to verse 3. Don't think I've said it all. Not only that. Did you notice his way of putting it? Not only that, but, and on he goes. You see, for all he had said in verses 1 and 2, we might have thought, how could anything be better? How could there be more to add? Oh, but there is more, Paul says. Not only that. Yes, and for amazing and as incredible a view of the Christian life as is portrayed in verses 1 and 2, and we know it is true, there is something further, something still more incredible to be said about this man who has been justified. Here he is enjoying this peace, standing in this grace, and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. And you would think nothing could touch him. You would think that all was well, all was light and breezy, that life was now suddenly made easy for the believer who has been justified, enjoying this peace with God, standing in this grace, and so on, and rejoicing in the future hope of glory. Nothing could ever disturb this man, you would think. But here in verse 3 we see, as John Murray says, that Paul was a realist. He was not so absorbed in the glory of the future that he closed his eyes to the realities of the present. And so Paul here mentions tribulations, hope of future glory, end of verse 2, immediately makes him think and speak of present sufferings. And that is characteristic of the mind in the preaching of the Apostle Paul, if you are familiar with, uh, with them at all. We see him doing this in 2 Corinthians. We see him doing this later in Romans chapter 8. He is comparing and contrasting not only or, or, or the future glories with uh, the present sufferings. The Christian is not someone who is solely absorbed in hope, rejoicing in hope of the future glory. He is also someone whose feet are firmly planted in the ground and he has to live life in this world. And his life is taken up and absorbed with all of the difficulties and the sufferings. And the trials of this present evil world. Now that is the realism which you find in the preaching of Paul. And it's a realism that the man who has been justified is aware of and ought to have as well. But do you notice how he speaks of these present sufferings or the tribulations of the, uh, of the current age? He says that even these make us rejoice. Not only is the Christian man rejoicing in hope of the glory of God, but he is rejoicing even now as he faces countless difficulties in the present world. Now this is the most amazing thing. 
That the Christian is enabled now to rejoice even in that which once troubled him so before he was justified. Namely, this world of sin and frustration, which again he later expounds in Romans chapter 8 and we'll have ample time to consider. The sufferings and the futility of the present life. This world that was subjected not willingly, but by God to futility. But here is the believer, Paul says, rejoicing in hope of the future glory and rejoicing at the same time in his present sufferings and frustrations in this world. Do you see why he puts it like he does? Not only is he rejoicing in something obviously worth rejoicing over the hope of glory and the resurrection. But he is also glorying in something that is less obviously good. Something that is seemingly bad. Namely, tribulation and trials. And do you see that Paul is actually saying that the Christian man who has been justified is rejoicing because of them. No, not in spite of them. This is not just him enduring them and hoping for their soon and speedy end. This is a picture of a man, the man who is who is justified, enjoying peace with God and so forth, who is also rejoicing because of the present sufferings. They are seen as adding to the other blessings, verses one and two, and filling up the measure of his joy, his exultant, assured joy in God. As though peace with God, standing in grace and hope of the glory were not enough. Here he finds further reason to rejoice. Tribulation. Surely we are tempted to say, this is madness, Paul. But Paul would respond, and I along with him. You only say that if you cannot grasp what it means to have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And what it is to stand in this grace. Of course, we know in the present world we are bound to suffer. This is inescapable. Unless we think that justification frees us from the present lot, here again we find Paul as a realist. And you find the same realism throughout the New Testament. Not only in Paul, but in Jesus and in all the other apostles. All of them in their preaching preached frequently on the subject and the realities of the present sufferings. And if anything, one thinks especially of the preaching of Jesus to his disciples. We read that our lot in this sinful world will only be made worse as a result of our having become Christians. Not better, but worse. New troubles will find us that did not find us before. Now that we are followers of Jesus Christ. Because we are Christians, we are suffering in new ways. We find that the world is against us, that it is not against Unbelievers in the same way. But do you realize what Paul is saying here? He is saying that the Christian is a man who is not disturbed by this. He is fully aware of it and he is prepared to face it. That doesn't mean he likes to suffer. None of these things are pleasant. Hebrews tells us that at the same time. We know that our father disciplines us for our own good. It it doesn't mean they're pleasant. It doesn't mean we seek out suffering like masochists. But it does mean that when suffering and tribulation finds the Christian as it is bound to do, that the Christian who has been justified and who is standing in 
the grace of God is not shaken by the trials and the tribulations that he finds. These things do not settle him the way they once did before he was a Christian. And certainly we realize they are unable to rob him of these other things. Trials cannot rob you of the peace you have with God. No, not if you have been justified. Nor can they make you fall from this grace in which you stand. And nor, especially Paul is concerned to emphasize, will they rob you of the hope of the glory of God that you are presently rejoicing in. No, if anything, Paul is concerned to stress and let us see that they are the very fuel or the vehicle by which this hope is made to flourish in the heart of the believer. Rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. Troubles find him. Does the hope go away? No, Paul says. Not only is the hope remaining, not only do trials fail to rob him of it, but the trials contribute something positive to the picture. They actually strengthen the hope in the believer. And the assurance that Paul was describing at the end of verse 2. They strengthen and confirm all of the blessings that attend justification and flow from it. And so look at it like this especially. This is characteristic of Paul. He, he presents uh, certain things and in doing so he introduces an idea that he then goes on to unfold. And so at the end of verse 2 he speaks of the hope of God. And that leads him to unfold that hope in verses 3 and 4. And then in verse 5, he speaks of the Holy Spirit uh, and the love of God. Well, that leads him in verses 6 through 11 to unfold on the love of God. And that's, that's how we find his mind being worked out. He's just spoken of hope. That's what he ended with at the end of verse 2. But do you notice he also ends with hope at the end of verse 4? He speaks of uh, peace with God, uh, standing in grace, and hope uh, rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. A list in verses 1 and 2 that ends with hope. And there's another list in verses 3 and 4 that also ends in hope. We glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. A perseverance character and character hope. Two lists, both of which end in hope. And here again, I am indebted in noting the significance of this to John Murray. Who, sp- who says, uh, speaking of this progression of thought. In, in the experience uh, of the believer, he says we have a circle beginning with hope and therefore ending with hope. And so the circle begins at the end of verse 2 with future hope. The believer who has been justified is rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. The future hope of the resurrection and the end of the age. Which leads him to speak of how this hope is cherished and strengthened in the heart of the believer... Through this world of suffering. Hope carrying us through into the end. And not without suffering, but through it. This believer cherishing the hope of future glory faces suffering. Inevitably and inescapably. Oh, but this is not so bad, you see. Not so bad as you might think, Paul says. Because tribulation works perseverance. And perseverance works character. And character works what? Hope. And so beginning with hope, we thus end with hope. The same hope. Hope in future glory, but now strengthened and perfected in us. These tribulations which came did not actually shake us after all. They did not make us ashamed. 
of that in which we hope. They rather strengthened us and confirmed us in this same hope. And realizing this, the believer is happy to be caught up in this circle because he knows the result of this process. Well, let us see how this how this works out. How are we made to go from hope to hope as a result of facing tribulation? Well, do you notice that Paul says this is a matter of knowledge? Look at precisely what he says, but not and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations knowing that. And then he describes the process or the circle of hope. It's a matter of knowledge. Our ability, that is, to glory in tribulation depends upon what we know. It is the result of something that we know, and especially our ability to apply that knowledge to our own situation as we face uh, trials, various kinds of trials and difficulties in this world. And as we apply that knowledge to ourselves, we will find that we are able to glory even in tribulations because we know what those tribulations are bound to produce in us. We understand, in other words, beginning with hope, the relationship of that hope to our present sufferings. And how is it that we know this? Well, first we know it because it's true. Paul is saying something that is obviously the case, if only you take the trouble to think it through. You have to ask when you face uh, suffering and trials of various kinds, why am I facing this? There has to be a reason. God is not without reason in sending this to me. And is it not because tribulations actually serve to make me better, working patience in me and character and thus hope? You see, just as soon as you begin to explain it, you realize that this is obviously true. It's true on the face, uh, on its face. To say it is to realize, is to realize its truth. The more we suffer, the more patient we become. You see, Paul isn't saying anything strange. And this is all but inevitable for any man, but especially for the Christian man who possesses the Spirit of God, the author and the perfecter of every grace in the believer. Tribulation is working patience. And from this patience, there is an overflow of character. Older translations have here experience. Tribulations work experience. The sense here, whatever the translation is, the passing of a test. And the trial is the test. Obviously so. God is testing our faith. He's testing our hope. He's purifying it. He's perfecting it. And bringing us through them, if the trial has not succeeded in killing you or your faith, What happens is that you're made better by it. You've gained experience. You're a more patient man. You have character formed in you that you did not have before. The great example of this, obviously, is Abraham himself, who was the example of faith. How did he come to such a great faith? It was through passing through many trials. And from this, the formation of Christian character... Hope arises in the soul and is strengthened once more. The man who has been brought uh, through all this now sees that he was not a fool to hope in what he had hoped. But now as a result of these trials, hope is strengthened in the soul. His confidence in God and in, and in God's purpose 
And what he is bringing the believer through and to is greatly enhanced. Yes, and Paul says this kind of hope that trials and tribulations work in the believer does not make us ashamed, quite the opposite. Trials may disappoint us. They may give us the sense that God is perhaps against us, but not for the man who knows what God is doing and applies that knowledge to his own experience. Beginning with hope, he arrives at hope. Only now it is stronger. It doesn't disappoint him. It makes him happy and strong. All because he's caught up in the circle of hope brought about through trials and tribulations. Now again, what I'm saying is that is something that is obviously the case. But beyond that, I'm answering the question, how do we know this? How do we know that trial, uh, trials press us forward and work us on to further hope? We know it because God has said it is true. And perhaps let us admit, in the midst of our difficulties, as we are experiencing them perfect, uh, personally, that perhaps it isn't so obvious uh, at that moment. But then, if it isn't, if perhaps you do not know it, or at least do not see it so clearly then, as Paul here saw it, well then you just have to rest on God's word, for that is what faith is. This is the clear teaching of scripture everywhere. It's the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the teaching of the Apostle Paul. It is especially, we find as well, I won't read the passages, but I might have, of James and Peter. What they are telling us is not just that tribulations are sure to come, but they tell us that we ought to rejoice when they come because we realize what they're working in us. They're purifying us. They're perfecting us. They are instruments in the hand, uh, in the hands of Almighty God. To purify and to perfect every grace in the believer. They are means of grace. Every bit as much as the preaching and the Lord's Supper and the fellowship of of Christian people. The effect of tribulations is that we are made better. We are strengthened. And thus we are actually, rather than knocked out of grace, we are better fit to stand in grace. And so I know it. The reason I know it is because God has said it. And he has been telling me it over and over and over again. You cannot read the Bible in any kind of serious uh, way without being confronted with this truth almost daily. But added to that, how can we know? Well, we can know from the same book and from the history of the church that there are countless examples that prove the truth of the statement. Yes, we know that tribulations work Patience and patience works character and character works hope. Why do we know it? Well, because we're students of the Bible and we're students of history. And one of the things that we notice in the examples, uh, the best examples of faith in Scripture and in the history of the church, the best men, the great men of faith, were always those who were brought through many trials. And it was, it was by bringing them through trials that God strengthened in them faith, hope, and assurance. And never apart from them. It was in the midst of trials, in other words, we recognize that their faith uh, shone forth in the midst of the darkness. It was in this that their greatness appeared, not in the ease of their living, but in the difficulty. Men who persevered, men who possessed character, men who rejoiced in hope of the glory of God always, but especially when things were against them. When all of the world and even the providence of God, it seemed, were conspiring against them to bring about their ruin. Even then, and especially then, they were glorying 
in the hope of the glory of God. But finally, we know this because of our own experience. We know that what Paul is saying is true because we have lived it ourselves and we have learned the same lesson. Experience proves over and over how true this is. We know it because we've lived it. And if only we were better students of our own experience, well, perhaps we would know it better than we do and never again doubt it. We would immediately recognize, in other words, what God was doing just as soon as some difficulty came into our lives. Instead of immediately saying, Lord, and be honest, this is your prayer, Lord, I'm ready for you to end this difficulty. And that is the, the exact minute it came into your life. Perhaps you would begin to pray because you know what God is doing. You are clear about it. God, bring me through it with greater faith. God, bring me through it with greater hope. God, work perseverance in me. These are the things I long for. This is the stuff of Christianity. This is the thriving of the soul in a world full of suffering. And then perhaps you will begin to glory as Paul is describing here. Not simply uh, in the peace that you have with God. Yes, that is wonderful. But even the trials and the difficulties and the darkness that he sends into your life. Even then I am able, as Paul will say in Romans chapter 8, and again, chapters 5 and 8 go together. He's almost saying the same thing in both chapters. He says, I know That all things are working together for my good. That is what I know as a Christian. Because I have been called according to his purpose. How do I know it? Because I've been justified. And because I now find that I love God. And I know that he loves me. And because I know that, I know that even the trials he sends into my life will always work something good in me. And I know at the same time that he will keep sending them. This is another thing uh, that I am learning. And it's something that... I'm guessing that you're learning as well. Do you know what happens when one trial ends? A greater trial comes. And that is the course of the whole of the Christian life. But what Paul is saying here and what I am saying to you, or at least I'm asking you to consider, is the glory of what God is accomplishing so that perhaps you might begin to glory in it too and rejoice even in the face of greater and greater difficulties all the time. No, it isn't getting easier. It's getting harder all the time. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Perhaps I am indeed a son of God. And so there's no room, as John Murray would say, for self-pity in the Christian life. That's what Paul is really saying here. There isn't any room for the woe is me attitude. Again, the exact moment a difficulty comes into your life or perhaps the fact that God doesn't remove it immediately. Or perhaps, as I just said, you realize that things are not seemingly getting better, but they're getting worse all the time. Woe is me. That isn't what the Christian is like, Paul is saying. But the Christian is a man who is rather like this. He's a man who knows that God is on his side. And so he's able to look at every circumstance and perceive that God, again, is working all things together for his good. And that God, through everything that he brings into his life, is preparing him to enjoy the very glory that he is rejoicing in the hope of. All of the glory that awaits him. Yes, and so everything makes him glory and rejoice in. In other words, nothing can make this man sad. 
Here, indeed, is the faith which overcomes the world. And only the man, Paul says, who has been justified by faith and who knows it, is a man who can live like this and know this. Here is a man for whom everything conspires to increase his assurance and to strengthen his hope in him. And he knows it and he sees it. In all of the circumstances of life, the man who is assured that God is for me and not against me. And so we've seen, we've seen uh, the circle of hope. We've seen the knowledge of the Christian. And finally, the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5. The great reason for this is stated in verse 5. Now, hope does not disappoint. Again, ending, completing the circle of hope, he, said, he tells us why. We are brought from hope to hope, and hope is in fact strengthened through this process because, he says, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And here we see who is the author of our hope and who it is who is there to strengthen our hope all along from grace to grace and hope to hope and faith to faith. It was the Holy Spirit in work of, uh, at work, I mean, in each of us and in each of us. Well, here Paul is saying something. I've already alluded to it. He's introducing and he's ending with an idea, but he's also introducing two ideas, which he will later expound upon. The first of which is the love of God, the love of God, which the Holy Spirit sheds abroad in our hearts. That is what he will immediately begin to discuss in verses six through eleven. He is also introducing another great theme, which we will find in chapter eight, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the grand theme of chapter eight, the work of the Holy Spirit. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, he is speaking of this blessed ministry of the Holy Spirit being that of working in us the grace of hope and the grace of assurance, which in reality, if you understand what those two words are, you'll see them as synonyms. The Holy Spirit is the author of these graces. That is why he was given to us. Namely, to strengthen us in every grace. By shedding the love of God abroad in our hearts. Now, what is meant by that? The shedding abroad of the love of God in our hearts. Uh, now, I, I don't know where I got that. Maybe that's the ESV. Maybe that's the King James. The, the new King James is perfectly clear. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts. And, and when you read that, you get the clear sense because that's exactly what being shed abroad means. It is the idea of an outpouring, of an, of an abundant and immense profusion from God. An outpouring of love through the Holy Spirit, which overwhelms, uh, which overwhelms us and fills us up to the full and even overflowing. It is the idea of an immediate impression upon our souls of the immeasurable love of God for the believer. The Holy Spirit, Paul says, was given to us, to every believer for this reason. In order to confirm us in this hope. This hope that does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in abundance in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And this is what makes us certain. This is what confirms us in hope. In other words, to have the love of God poured into your soul by the Holy Spirit is what assures you that the hope that you entertained wasn't a dream after all. It wasn't your own imagination. 
know it was true. And it cannot disappoint you. Now you are sure. You are sure because of the work of the Holy Spirit in you. He is there again to assure us of God's love. As he later says in Romans chapter 8 verses 15 through 17. For you did not receive, he says, the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. There you see it again. To speak of suffering makes him speak of glory. To speak of glory makes him speak of suffering. Oh, but it's all right, he says. It's all right because of what the Spirit of God is doing. He isn't finished, thank God, with justification. For as great as it is, it really is just the beginning. And the whole glory of the Christian life is realizing this. It's seeing what the Spirit is working in us day by day. And what it is he is preparing us for. To have the love of God shed abroad in the heart of the believer, which is precisely uh, what he is describing in Romans chapter 8 under, uh, under a different uh, manner of speech. The testimony of the Holy Spirit there as to our sonship in chapter 8 and chapter 5, the pouring out of the love of God. This is, uh, let me say, one of the greatest experience a man can ever have. The immediate and overwhelming impression upon his soul made by the Spirit of God as to the love of God concerning him personally and specifically. Not a general sense of the love of God, but a personal sense of it. That I am beloved, that I am a son of God. The sense that we are sons and that God has loved me with a great love. And this, indeed, what Paul is describing here, this experience, is the highest possible form of, the, of assurance. Not one that we arrive at ourselves, but one that is given to us from above. But I would not pretend that this is a constant experience. No, always in this life, we are caught up, remember, in this process or this circle of hope, moving from hope to hope. And much lies in between Prolonged periods of testing in which even doubt itself, we realize, uh, may begin to appear. But Paul is saying, do not worry over much about such things. Because you know what God is doing. You know God is doing something great and glorious in you. And that great things await you. He's not only bringing you from hope to hope, verses 2 through 4. But he is preparing you, verse 5, for an experience and an outpouring of his love through the Holy Spirit that will overwhelm you. And there is no way a man can have this experience and not have assurance. Far from being disappointed in his hope, he will be totally and completely confirmed in the hope of the glory of God. And as I close, I just want to ask you this question. My question to you is this. Do you know anything of what Paul is describing here? He says, we know. Well, my question is, do you know? Do you know it? Not as a matter of argument. Not as a matter merely of understanding the meaning of the words. But I'm asking you if what Paul is describing is your own experience of the grace of God having been justified. There is nothing you realize 
if you know it, that can compare to this awesome testimony of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that we are the sons of God. That we are beloved of the Father in the Son and that Christ has died for us. Oh, Abba, Father, my God and Father, whom I love and who has loved me. Do you know what it is to cry out like this? In the midst of this awesome testimony of the Holy Spirit in your hearts. You see, this is where arguments fail and trials do not harm us. This is to be caught up almost, it would seem, into the third heaven and surrounded and overwhelmed by the love of God in Christ. It is A foretaste of heaven itself, which Jonathan Edwards says, is a world of love. And I'm sure that he is right. Heaven is a constant and a continual experience of what Paul is describing here. The overwhelming and abundant profusion of the love of the Father through the Son to the saints. And to have this love shed abroad in your hearts means you are not merely conscious of God's love toward you, but it means that you are sure of it. That's what Paul is describing here. Not the man who suffers trials in this world and concludes perhaps God is against me after all. No. Here is the man glorying even in tribulation because he knows what will happen. And most of all, because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, testifying to his sonship i know it isn't always like this but this is an experience every believer is sure to have just as surely as the holy spirit has been given to each of us who believe this is nothing unusual even if it is not always the case the christian life is not a continual shedding abroad of the love of god into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. But let us not, at the same time, place it in the category of the exceptional. This is something which the believer may expect and will experience. Times in which we are so conscious of the love of God that we simply cry out, Father, and we are sure. We are sure of God's love and nothing can dissuade us of it. Not even the sorest trials. Here is the mountaintop. And again, you realize that Paul is describing a process moving from one thing to the next. And we do not live on the mountaintop. It is true. But you also realize that it awaits you. If only you persevere through a little more suffering. And so I say uh, to this church, go on and do not lose heart, though you are bound to face many trials in this world. And as you go on, keep on hoping in God, despite all you suffer. For this is a hope that will never disappoint the believer in this world or make you ashamed. And along the way, the Holy Spirit will be there to help you, to intercede for you, and to offer you this assurance of the love of God. And do you know that? Amen. And let us come together to the table.